Will you pray with me, please? May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be fully pleasing to you, O Lord, God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Sermon today is on God's economy. Some of you may have watched the TV drama Succession. It's the story of the multi-billionaire Roy family who own a media and entertainment conglomerate. The four adult Roy children all vie to be the one, named as dad's successor as CEO. The plot displays sibling rivalries at their worst and most destructive, and both personal and corporate greed are on full display. It's one of those guilty pleasures to watch. So much rich person badness on display. We can comfort ourselves that we might be bad, but we are certainly not that bad. The parable of the rich fool in today's reading challenges us to examine our own attitudes and values towards our finances and our stuff, our relationships with others, and what our life leaves behind for others. Talking about money and possessions is not something that any of us like to do. It's a social taboo to talk about how much one earns, what one spends, what one gives. Talking about the economy of the world and our culture as compared to God's economy is not only unpopular, but in our time, just as in Jesus' time, can be dangerous. Compare Gordon Gekko's Greed is Good speech in the movie Wall Street with Jesus' teachings on loving God and loving your neighbor as yourself. The rich and powerful have worked long and hard to protect the system that benefits them and do not take kindly to criticisms or challenges to that system. In the verses of Luke chapter 12 preceding our text, we learned that a crowd of many thousands had gathered so that they were trampling one another and that Jesus was speaking about many serious matters to his disciples. Can you imagine the rowdy crowd all jostling for a better position, trying to get nearer to Jesus so they can speak with him? Someone in the crowd speaks up to get Jesus' attention. Hey, teacher! Tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Rabbis were often called upon to mediate in family inheritance disputes, but this man does not seem to be asking for a full examination of the issues in his case. No, he tells Jesus the decision he once handed down. Jesus does not bite on getting embroiled in a family dispute and instead gives the man two answers. First, he asks him a question. Man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? And then he calls out a warning. Watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. When Jesus refuses to get involved in the man's inheritance dispute and issues a warning against all kinds of greed, he has perceived that the man is so wrapped up in worry about getting what he thinks he is owed that he's willing to risk the relationship with his brother and his family. The man's emphasis is on accumulation and an obsession with fairness. 
He's operating out of an economy of scarcity, feeling he has to fight to get and keep his fair share. If this attitude turns his brother into a competitor and a barrier to his own desires, then so be it. The term translated in the scripture as greed refers to growing bigger, maximizing abundance, and to yearn for increase. There's a Greek term, pleonexia, that applies, and this is a concept that unites greed, covetousness, and avarice into an insatiable desire to have what rightfully belongs to another. Jesus was pointing out to this man and to us that life does not consist in the abundance of possessions, but in our relationships. Then he tells this parable. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? Jesus says, this is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich toward God. At first glance, it can be confusing as to why this man gets such a dressing down from God. He calls him a fool. What is Jesus saying here? Is it so wrong or so foolish to plan for one's retirement? He did not gain his wealth illegally. He had a good crop here. Should we not be able to enjoy the fruits of our labors? It's been said in the business world, it's all about location, location, location. In politics, it's been famously said that it's the economy, stupid. And in God's economy, the key word is relationship, relationship, relationship. God's economy hinges on our relationship with God our relationship with one another, and our relationship with the resources that God has provided. Notice the wording that starts the parable. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. Jesus does not start out by saying that a certain landowner had an abundant harvest. No, it's the land that yielded the harvest, not the man. And yet in the rich man's conversation with his best advisors, me, myself, and I, his self-absorption and self-congratulation is apparent. My crops, my barns, my grain surplus, take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. God calls the man a fool and tells him that his life will be demanded of him that very night. In scripture, fool refers to someone who engages in self-destruction by living against the grain of God's governance. The rich man did not give thanks to God for provision of the land, for the fertility of the soil, for the waters that nourish the crops, nor does he seem to give any thought or credit to the workers who tilled the soil, planted the crop, weeded and fertilized, watered and harvested that crop. He did not seem to consider his obligation to give the first fruits of this harvest to God 
nor to allow his neighbors to glean his fields. This rich man in today's world would probably consider himself to be a self-made man. He does not seem capable of even seeing the forces of creation and the people who have done all the real work. He credits his success to himself and believes that he is entitled to do whatever he wants with his wealth to increase his own comfort. The man does not consider a legacy, so when he dies, it is suggested that strangers will enjoy what he has prepared for himself. Jesus sums up the parable by saying, this is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich toward God. We must remember that Jesus, the Word made flesh, had a complete command of the scriptures from Genesis onward. His parables and sermons and teachings pull together all of the law, the prophets, the books of wisdom, and the Psalms. We're accustomed to reading scripture a few verses or chapters at a time, and in this way we can miss some of the rich references to scripture and the unifying messages throughout scripture. Walter Brueggemann is a Bible scholar who's published many, many books. In his book, Money and Possessions, he takes a deep dive into the texts of the entire Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, to explore what scripture tells us about money and possessions. He proposes six theses of God's economy and explores how they stand in direct opposition to our current economic system and the dominant Western culture. This is where we enter the danger zone. Things in scripture that we do not want to hear, do not want to consider, because it's all so risky to our way of life and our comfort. Like the young man who turns away and does not follow Jesus because he can't see himself selling all of his property and giving it to the poor. The challenge of living fully by God's economic rules can be too difficult for us. In Walter Brueggemann's words, the testimony of scripture is a deep misfit and an acute inconvenience in our society with its tacit economic assumptions. We would prefer to separate money and possessions, politics and economics from the ultimate existential questions. The first thesis is that money and possessions are gifts from God and not our own achievements or accomplishments. This challenges our temptation to imagine we are self-sufficient or self-reliant. We do love to imagine ourselves in control and in charge, don't we? Our Western culture highly values independence, and if we believe this first rule of God's economy, then all our ideas about how great we are, how we did it all by ourselves, the self-made man myth all fly out the window. Brueggemann says that when the giver of all good gifts is forgotten, the gifts themselves are sure to be distorted in destructive ways. This idea very directly challenges our market economy view that there are no gifts, no free lunch, only payouts for adequate performance and production. We see here the error of the rich man who gave all credit and consideration only to himself. The second thesis is a difficult one, that money and possessions are received as a reward for obedience. Brueggemann explains it this way. 
Prosperity arises in the wake of obedience to Torah because the Creator God is not indifferent to human conduct. Thus the commandments of the Sinai Torah, the Ten Commandments, are regulations for bringing one's life into sync with the ordered quality of creation that is not negotiable. <coughs> Taken in the most healthy way, disobedience consists in the joy of being in sync with God and not a burden, because it's simply an acting out in real life of one's true life with God and delight in God's companionship. This idea can be distorted as in Job's case, whose friends assumed all of his troubles were due to something he did wrong or something he neglected to do. This can also be distorted into works of righteousness where we may imagine that we are owed prosperity for our obedience. In our market economy, we believe that those who are productive should receive all the rewards the system has to offer, while those who are not seen as productive, the old, the poor, the homeless, the mentally ill, the child, the disabled, etc., are left behind. We can see here again where our rich man held to the market economy values rather than those of God. Brueggemann's third thesis is that money and possessions belong to God and are held in trust by human persons in community. The steward is not the owner, but is accountable to the owner, who is God. Brueggemann says when their possessions are well managed, they flourish to the credit of the creator. When they're mismanaged long enough, they may be withdrawn from the steward who has distorted the intent of the creator owner. The rich man of our parable adopts the market ideology that it's my money, my land, I earned it and I can do with whatever I want, neglecting God's intent that his gifts are for the benefit of all creation. The fourth thesis is that money and possessions are sources of social injustice. Brueggemann tells us the tradition of Deuteronomy is insistent that money and possessions must be managed in the practice of justice, that is, for the good of the entire community. That tradition further insists that Israel, in covenant with God and compelled by Torah, is to handle possessions and money differently from all others. Economic resources are to be subordinated to the common good for the well-being of the neighbor, most especially the neighbor without resources. As followers of Jesus and God's economy, we are to act differently from our broader society with regards to money. This idea contradicts the assumption of the markets that autonomous wealth is not connected to the community and so social justice issues never even surface. And so our rich man, by not considering the needs of his workers and his community, once again fell foul of God's economic rules. The fifth is that money and possessions are to be shared in a neighborly way. All members of the community are seen as entitled to the wherewithal for a viable life of security, dignity, and flourishing. This is a direct challenge to the market assumption that there are no neighbors, only rivals, competitors, and threats. Acknowledging neighbors makes all types of predatory practices illegitimate. What would our rich landowner have done differently had he acknowledged his neighbors in his contemplations? 
And finally, the sixth thesis is that money and possessions are seductions that lead to idolatry. Brueggemann says the Bible attests that money and possessions are not inanimate objects. They are rather forces of desire that evoke lust and love in a way that compels devotion and eventually servitude. In her essay titled, Hazmats or Good Gifts, Dorothy Jean Weaver states, in the end, the greatest moral degradation caused by money and possessions is the destruction of the human capacity to serve God. And this, Jesus says, is the direct consequence of serving wealth. When these rules of God's economy are not followed, we easily fall prey to aggressive advertising that, fears, that plays on our fears of scarcity. There's a word for it, FOMO, fear of missing out. We listen to the drumbeats that tell us we don't have enough. We haven't done enough. We are not enough. And then we're told that the next fancy shiny product we don't have yet will make us secure and happy. And by the way, we deserve it because look how hard we work. And we can finance it for you in a lifetime of simple payments. The fear leads to worry, which leads to striving after things that will not last. In the verses that follow our parable in Luke 12, 22 to 34, Jesus offers us an alternative to the rat race. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, or about your body, what you will wear. For life is more than food and the body more than clothes. Consider the ravens. They do not sow nor reap. They have no storerooms or barns, yet God feeds them. And how much more valuable you are than birds. Who of you by worrying can add a single hour to your life? Since you cannot do this very little thing, why do you worry about the rest? Consider how the lilies grow. They do not labor or spin, yet I tell you not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And don't set your heart on what you will eat or drink. Don't worry about it. For the pagan world runs after all such things, and your father knows that you need them. But seek his kingdom, and these things will be given to you as well. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Provide purses for yourself that will not wear out, a treasure in heaven that will never fail, where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jesus's antidote to the never-ending cycle of fear that leads to greediness is to refuse to participate in the world of fear. He tells his followers to sell your possessions and give to the poor. A life of giving is, a, is sustainable and alternative treasure. Brueggemann notes that Jesus has masterfully managed the parable to contrast commodity with creation. Commodity is presided over by fear. 
but creation is presided over by the God who generously guarantees abundance. What does giving our money away do? It robs it of its seductive, sacred quality and submits it to the rule of God. Giving it away, using it in a way not intended by the market, destroys its element of power. Giving money away brings it back to its role as an instrument to be deployed as we use any other tool. Jacques Ahul states that giving is the penetration of grace into the world of competition and selling. We have very clear indications that money in the Christian life is made in order to be given away. None of these are popular ideas. They are not easy for us to put into practice. Being rich toward God involves a practical act of managing our money and our possessions differently by the laws of God's economy rather than of the market economy. Let us follow the example that John Wesley gave us, who famously said, having first gained all you can, and secondly saved all you can, then give all you can. Amen. <laughs>